Welcome back to another season of Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is Captain Benjamin Van Buskirk, the founding director of NavalX and the founding deputy director of the Office of Strategic Capital. Ben recently retired from the Navy after 25 years of service. Ben, welcome to Accelerate Defense. Hey, Ken, it's great to be here. My pleasure. As you say goodbye to NavalX, what are you most proud of in your tenure there? Um, You know, I would say, while I was at NavalX, it was actually getting the organization some authorities, some people, and some money. Um, as, as, as we all know, um, and I don't know if we all know it, but my very first day to OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense, when I went to go help stand up the Office of Strategic Capital last fall, very first day or very first brief was an, an idea without resources is called a hallucination. And um, when Naval X started, it was, it's a startup organization and it was kind of see where it goes, be scrappy, and it was very clear to me that we needed some level of resourcing people and authorities in order to do anything. So I got us at least the ball moving on that to those together while I was at Naval X so that they could you know, at least not just be never any pickup game, which it is with you know all defense startups if you don't have this thing. There's a corollary to that rule. I can't remember the exact verbiage, but in startup world, you know, ideas without resources sometimes provoke the most innovative problem solving. <laughs> what are some examples of that from your time at Naval X where you were just wowed by the people you were working with at their ability to solve problems with a bare minimum of investment of resources, but just enough belief? Yeah, I mean, I would start off with like, when I reflect on it, the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting, one of the Naval X lines of effort, I think perfectly embodies that because it was a handful of motivated Marines who had learned Scrum, Agile, the methodology of how that works, human-centered design, design thinking, those different ways of thinking and had applied it to what, I say, abstracted the core ideas, applied it to what they're doing in the Marine Corps. And like, wow, we can really teach this and teach Marines and sailors like how to do this stuff because it'll really help. And so it was totally organic. And when I got to Naval X, it was, we just kind of provided care and feeding. And it was just awesome to see this continue to go and sprout and mostly through volunteers. It was people that believed in it. We would provide travel funding, support, general like leadership overhead, but it was the people themselves that just ran with this. And so they taught, I can't remember the metrics. I mean, thousands folks, they go travel around the country, teach these courses. And we had army folks, air force folks, you know, across the gamut, teaching folks different ways of thinking, completely grown organically on a shoestring budget. And it's still going. And I think that if we were to like, for some reason, you know, the funding were to dry up and stop it, they would still find a way to survive because it's just, it's given, there's a demand there and it's given folks something they need. So that's just an example. I really like the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting. It's uh, powerful tools that those of us that have learned it, I learned it at VMware when I was in industry, and that you can apply these industry best practices, you know, at tweak it a bit and see what happens in the military. Do you envision a day when that mindset that you just described at the Center for Adaptive Warfighting becomes endemic? I mean, Naval X describes itself as 
an innovation and agility cell enabling people to think differently and deliver more effective solutions to the warfighter. Can that entrepreneurial spirit be scaled, be replicated so broadly that NavalX works itself out of business, or will a super connector always be required? Well, that was our goal, was to no longer need to exist and just being the way. Can it happen? Yes. Will it happen? Probably not. <laughs> just being honest. Well, it goes, so I will go back to a comment. This was back in 2019. I was a fellow. We were visiting Microsoft. And it was seven of us kind of waiting in between meetings and in comes Sashi Nadella. He had some time on his schedule. And he's like, you've got an hour. Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. And he had said that, you know, I asked him how he turned Microsoft around during his time, completely changed the, the focus of the company. And kind of what you're saying, how do you take something that was like the boutique side thing and turn it into the way? And he said, well, he did it. Um, it was really hard. And that's a big idea. Take Everyone wants to create the innovation cell. Everyone wants to make like the, here, go do your innovation stuff without actually touching the core of who the organization is. And he had said, that's just innovation theater. That's being cool by association. If you really want to change, you need to take the, the way that was the innovation way and make it the core of who you are. And that's what they did when they turned it into a cloud company. It's, it said that it was, we were, the cloud people, Azure, were sort of like the wild guys on the side. And he's like, we had to make it the core of who we were. So that was really hard. And I won't get into more details on how that happened, but it takes leadership from the very, very top and a lot of work and a lot of resources. And you're going to make a lot of people mad. You know, a lot of people left Microsoft when did that. You had to hire new people. So there's a whole lot that goes into doing that level of organization change. So the question is, could we with the right, it would take a lot of firepower to do it, but would we want to? That's a whole other thing. So high risk, you know, it's not talking about a company. We're talking about the United States Navy. And so I think there's a reason to be a little more risk averse, but could you? Yes, with the right level of leadership. What are the biggest challenges to affecting that kind of innovation contagion? Is it primarily risk aversion? Is it lack of awareness? Those are fundamentally different challenges. In fact, they are in opposition. What what were the biggest obstacles you faced in spreading the way, as you've put it? I would say, and this goes back to my experience as a squadron commander also, that it is part of it is the nature of who we are. And Hondo Gertz had said this once, if it flies or floats or sinks, you got to be careful with your innovation. As we saw with the Titan, there are certain things that you don't want to be innovative on as an aviator. Like, it's hard to, and I found this in my squadron, I wanted to think of new ways of doing things in certain aspects of squadron life and how we did our processes and, and such, and it worked. But then you have to turn it off when you go out to the aircraft because like, okay, I don't want innovation on the flight deck of the carrier at night. Like, we know how to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. You're going to get yourself killed. And so I think in the military, that's one of the big challenges is like, there's a place for innovation and a place not to be. And to be able to do it in the right location with the right people at the right time. So you don't end up killing yourself or hurting somebody. And it's very hard to draw those lines to say, we're going to have an innovative mindset in one situation, but okay, now do it by the book. It's challenging. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that it's, does. It's hard. It's, there's, there's a place for it. Um, DevGrew does a ton of innovation. Top Gun, there's people that do the innovative work. It's very hard to scale it in a way that makes a lot of sense. And so I think with our leadership, you know, you're taking high risk with these type of things, but I do think there have been leadership that really want to do it and want to scale some of these. 
And then it just comes into a resourcing problem is it takes a lot of work. Think of how you would scale this, like what we did across the Navy. I mean, that's training, that's, you know, uh, follow through, expertise, reinforcement, all those things to change. That is a great explanation of some of the practical hurdles in spreading the innovation mindset. Let's pan way out. Mm -hmm. Do you think about some of the ethical implications of innovation, something that, you know, we really haven't had to think about often, but we have new iterations of Manhattan projects happening in garage labs right now. When you think about the implications of things like AI, how much did the ethics of innovation factor into your leadership? I would say, at least from my perspective at Naval X, it really wasn't really in my wheelhouse. I do recall when I was on the Navy staff on OpMav, there were you know, lots of discussions about ethical use of AI and putting together some sort of policies behind it. So it was always a thing. You know, got to have a warfighter in the loop. You're not going to go fully autonomous. So, I mean, I know those are big and it affects our acquisition decisions and, and what we acquire and that we always got to have a, a warfighter in the loop. At Office of Strategic Capital, other ethical issues are more that we're trying to build greater partnerships with industry. And NavalX, we did a little of that too, or a lot of it building better relationships with non-traditional industry partners to better understand how each other work to break down and address those areas of friction that I'm sure we're all familiar with. And similarly with OSC, it's, you know, it is about partnering with private capital to get what the stuff we need done. And so there's a whole lot of ethical, as you call it, minefields there, but we just do it very carefully and deliberately. So I think that's answering your question. They're always going to be, we, you always want to do it ethically and a great idea more than some um, ethical lapse. How much were those areas of friction that you describe between DOD and the commercial sector due to cultural barriers? I mean, some of it surely was legal and legislative, but I imagine a lot of it was just language, right? I think culture is the biggest one. You take a bunch of 06, I use 06 as an example, a bunch of 06. No, we beat up on them here too. It's fine. Oh, I know. I used used to rip on 06s all the time. Sorry, all my 06 friends, but as I always bug the the heck out of me and I became one. But you realize like you have a certain way of thinking. And if you take a group of 10, you know, standard 06s, put them in a room with 10 equivalent of them in venture or private equity, they're going to think each other a little weird. So it is a cultural difference that we need to break down. It's incentives. It's completely different incentive structures. And I think you said it really well. It's a lack of understanding of just things that you, anyone in industry would think, or in the startup world, for example, think is fundamental, like runway, a series A, series B. There are many folks that if, you know, we've been in the military is one of the few organizations that you go in and you stand. And this is a whole other topic we could talk about, about how to fix that. But when you've been, you know, I flew helicopters for 20 years, and then I was very fortunate to have done an industry fellowship and then this great work with Naval X and OSC and working with industry. But it was like, I'm sort of unique in that. A lot of folks just, it's completely foreign. Similarly to industry folks, when I say industry, I'm talking about whether it's VC or startups on the incentive structure for the military. Like, oh, you're just so slow, it takes forever. Well, there's a reason why it's slow and takes forever because there isn't a lot of incentive if you're a contracting officer to move fast. There is incentive to not screw up though. Same thing with financial management and budgeting. There's, it's just very, very different. And the most important thing is to understand, in my mind, there are cultural differences. And if you understand each other, 
then better. And what drives that behavior, you can figure out ways to work together better. What are some of the best tricks you learned for bridging that cultural gap? Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, a program that you think needs to be scaled. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's a team building exercise. (laughs) What were some of your tricks for getting those O6s and those innovators to actually communicate? So the number one best thing we did is doing these sort of industry exchanges. So luckily we have quite a few of them whether it's called a tour with industry or industry exchange program. I was a secretary of defense executive fellow. So it's an OSD program for more senior folks or a shift is a private company and they run a program of getting service members into startups and VCs just for anywhere from, I think six months to a year, sometimes smaller, but it's just, just like high school, like go hang out with the other people. (laughs) That's the number one thing showing up. And it was actually another great industry leader. We were at an event in New York with finance and he was like, the fact that you're here is like 90% of the battle, like just show up. And there is a cultural, I would say barrier to that where there's this sort of just going and meeting with industry. You have to be careful. There's a lot of rules around it. And so some folks are just like, I'm just, I don't like meeting with industry because it's an ethical landmine. I don't even want to talk. I don't want to go to lunch. It's just somebody could see it. And so there, because of the perception of being too close, it unfortunately, I think, creates a cultural barrier, as I'd say, behind the walls of the Pentagon and outside the walls of the Pentagon. But number one, I think the best thing you can do is continue to do more cross-pollination, things like um, those industry fellowships. And I know we've talked about it a lot, and a lot of folks have interested if we could do the reverse of getting folks from industry come spend a year in the Pentagon and understand how we operate. It would be very valuable, but we haven't been able to figure out how to do that in a way that that doesn't provide conflict of interest. But I think that's the number one thing, going out, getting outside, building relationships and understanding from the other person's perspective how they operate. And then that's 90% of it right there. We've been talking about O6s and industry leaders. How do innovation cells like Naval X make sure that they are hearing what the actual war fighters need, because that is a thin and, and winding thread between the front lines and the Pentagon and the industry decision makers. How do you stay connected? Um, so Naval X actually has a program that I'm really excited about because I turned over Naval X a little over a year ago before I went to OSC and in a budding program we called Innovation Navigators, which was that idea of taking Naval X folks, getting you know, when people come in, same thing, even when somebody comes on detail to like a place like Naval X, they have to learn. It was a huge learning curve for me coming from an operational guy to have to learn acquisition, learn how office safety research works, understand like I didn't even know what a warfare center was. Most people don't know what a warfare center is. They're this network of federal labs that have all these smart engineers doing great things. But yet Naval Xers come from all these places. So you have to learn how to answer a question though. Innovation navigators just take people, understand how the, this ecosystem works to go out and get out and work with the fleets, uh, numbered fleets, pack fleet. We talked about Task Force 59. I'm sure you've heard of them out in the Gulf. We'd send our folks out to be their ears, listen to what their challenges are, and help bridge that gap back to the building, I say the building, the Pentagon, and the, and the rights connect to those stakeholders because that's so often what's missing. Similar to an industry folks, when I was at Naval X, I said the number one issue is I don't know who to even talk to. The problem inside the DOD also is I'm not sure who to talk to, especially if I'm like an operator. And so we have folks that are running with that at Naval X now. 
Uh, and that's their job as they go out, they go forward, they talk to the end users and then understand their problems and help translate that to the right people in the building to make it work. But it's a small, it's a small group, small team, and I'd love to scale it more. It just takes time. We had uh, Mike Presser on the show a while back talking about Task Force 5.9 and Sail Drone and some of those really cool innovations. That was the week that I believe the Iranians tried to <laughs> grab one of their one of their drones and and they were in high gear dealing with that. So very cool that you are you are out there with them. How do you stay on the the bleeding edge of tech innovation? How do you stay aware of what is happening in labs and make sure you're connecting it with the realities of what's happening downrange? It's really hard. When I first got to Naval X, so this was a few years back, I said, all right, who has awareness of all the stuff going on in the labs? Because there's this innovation everywhere and you got all these problems. How do we, can I just see like what the labs are working on? And the answer was no. <laughs> um, you don't see everything they're working on. People keep those cards pretty close. So I ended up pulling up the chain. It's like, yeah, a very high official at the secretariat is really the one that has a level of understanding of what's actually happening in the labs. I could never crack that code because going into incentives, the labs are being paid to do great work. And there's not a whole lot of incentive to share what your budgets are and what you're working on specifically with other labs and with the outside. But they're doing great work. Uh, there's so much innovation going on in the federal labs that kind of like requirements. Hey, what's the who has, knows all the requirements? Nobody knows all the requirements. It's decentralized. And where can you go see it? Well, you can't just go see it. It's classified. There's a lot of compartmentalization in R&D and um, in our requirements that make it even more difficult, both internally and externally, to kind of connect all the dots. So I know it's sort of a cop-out on that answer, but it is very hard. It's really finding the right people to talk to at these labs that have, there are people, they have the, the, the information, and it's a matter of getting them to work together. And that's just that's a bit of a challenge. Without getting either of us into trouble, what are some of the most exciting innovations coming up? What are some of the things that you worked on at Naval X that are coming down the pike? I just, I still think going back to what Mike Bressur said, and when the Navy stood up the Unmanned Task Force and, and Office of Navy Research started their scout program at about the same time Task Force 59 stood up, I supported those with my folks at Naval X because I believed. There's a lot going on in unmanned systems that we need to get after for the future of warfighting. And, and with unmanned systems will, of course, include cloud computing, will include AI, will include networking. I doubled down on unmanned systems when I was at Naval X that I sent my folks to go support those organizations. And yeah, multiple conversations with Michael Bursar on, you know, hey, you're doing the innovation there. We need to figure out how to get it now into the big ugly, as I call it, the acquisition and budgeting and all that kind of stuff, because they're out there just going with what they can as fast as they can with the money they have. But as you all know, you can do that, but that doesn't lead to a transition. And so we're a lot of working on how do we get the work that's happening out there and then now continue it so that these companies, it's not just showing up and doing an exercise, but actually a recurring revenue to contracts and all that kind of stuff. So I do think unmanned systems and everything that goes around with that is really exciting to me. I'll also say, and this isn't super sexy, but there's a lot of opportunity in the back office that people just kind of don't get after. Think of what ChatGPT or 
Google Bard or all these other language processing and, and other pretty advanced AIs could do for some of our back office work, whether it's budgeting, financing, uh, contracting, all these things that are super intensive, very admin intensive. I think there's an opportunity there. And I know there are some, I just talked to a great company yesterday, there are companies that are out there that are like, we can like think of what you could do if you could get contracting to take a third of the time because you'd have a properly trained AI to check documents, make sure they're right, identify issues and remove the churn and the bureaucratic churn of the checking of things. So I think the back office is a huge opportunity. It's just a matter of just doing it. Well, that's uh, the optimistic view. What are your biggest fears, both near term and over the horizon, when you look at these technologies, unmanned, AI, everything our adversaries are developing at the same pace or in some cases faster than we are. Well, and just like all of them, this is just my personal opinion on it. We have our ethical standards. A lot of our adversaries don't have the same ethical standards. And so it's just a matter of time before we're going to have fully autonomous weapons with kinetic kill capability without a human in the loop. And they're just going to be, you know, the thing we always talk about, Skynet and Terminator and all that, sci-fi. But I know people are doing it. We may not, but that's my concern. Somebody is going to do it. And how do you prevent that from happening? And then I would say I don't have any super unique thoughts on that other than, yeah, somebody's going to do it. And what do you do? That concerns me. What can we learn from how this is playing out in real time in Ukraine? I am sure that you and people in your orbit are watching that very closely, what are some of the biggest lessons? Well, I would say, you know, of course, there's awesome ones at the high side and the classified level. Totally unclass. Big lessons for me, not terribly, but it's that the idea of a lightning campaign is just proven over and over again. The Blitzkrieg in the end didn't work. We talked about immaculate destruction. We did, you know, shock and awe. And then, you know, Russia tried to do this quickly. It seems like the old adage that all wars turn into wars of attrition is playing itself out again. I'd say from a strategic standpoint, it's another lesson that don't expect a war to happen quickly, that it's going to drag on and it's going to be high attrition. And uh, it's usually going to end up just being that way. I think it's yet to be determined the impact. I mean, there's been impact of advanced technology on the battlefield with things like SpaceX's system for communication, and then, of course, unmanned systems have been helping immensely. But it still goes back to the same logistics. Artillery is king, ammunition, people. It's kind of amazing, actually, when you look at it, that it's more the same than it's different. Willingness to fight, alliances. Strangely, a lot of the traditional war fighting challenges that we used to. That's, it's true. What is old is new again. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that we are seeing World War One play out in Europe. Yeah. Let's pivot to strategic capital. We had Finality and Cole on the show talking about it. I would love you to share with us the warfighter's perspective on the importance of strategic capital. And I'm going to bias your answer here because I suspect that the warfighter writ large, you accepted, does not have a perspective on this because we have no idea how massive our advantage as a nation in this area is, much less how to leverage it. How should we be thinking about strategic capital? Is there any real awareness outside of your small orbit of the importance of that? So I will start answering this one with, yeah, the warfighter perspective is, 
you're so busy and it reminds me of you know my most of my career was spent at the tip of the spears of warfare you're just not even thinking about it it's just like i gotta get my planes working i've got to deploy i've got to get the dudes to medical i've got to like get my aircraft up i got to get this mission done and so you're completely focused on the now out forward and so a lot of times when you know and i experience this when folks come out and say oh what do you need i'm like what did Ford say? If you ask the customer what they want, they say a faster horse. I'm like, okay, I need this, 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 and this to get what I need done today. And there is this dynamic between what is the future war need and the big thinking and strategic capital and then the fight tonight. And you see it play out all the time between the combatant commands. You got you know the PACOM, the, the, you know, the folks out in Europe that have the fight tonight and are screaming to DC for resources. And then or also have folks in DC that are looking at the future and in other places on like, well, say, how do you balance that? So the warfighter perspective is almost always like, here's what I need now. And unfortunately, you know, the creative, you know, you'd be very creative with what you have out at the front, but I didn't find I had a lot of time to really be thinking about big conceptual things out there. It kind of wasn't my job. It was like, hey, the guys back, you know, when I got to DC, I came in and did the war games and like, you just don't have time to do it. It's so bogged down with the day-to-day. So... The strategic capital thing, most folks forward, I think, just aren't even thinking about it. And then I just give me stuff I need. And that's where I think there's some power there is there's a lot of commercial technology, dual use, dual impact, as I've heard a lot of folks say, that can really solve these warfighter problems. They just don't realize it. They don't see that's the other thing. You're also like, I was Japan for many years. Like, I'm forward deployed in the middle of the Pacific. Like, I don't even see this stuff. Oh, and you don't have internet on the ship either. So, I mean, it's just like you're like on this island. And so you don't know what's even out there. And so, it's a matter of the, I think there's great tech. It's just getting it in the hands of warfighters. So I think what like Michael Brasser did is these exercises, just get it there, get the tech there so that the warfighters can go, oh, I didn't know I could do this. This solves my problem. That's like 90% of it. So the private capital, the strategic capital part is, all right, how do we bridge that? Hey, we see the strategic problem. Let's get capital flowing in this technology and get it in the hands of warfighters so they can mess with it and see if it works. And then also be that bridge of what do they really need? That's a whole other subject. What do we need? That you could go on for an hour. How do you envision Naval X's role evolving over the next 10 years? What me personally would like to see is there's been, I don't know if you're familiar with the new legislation in the NDAA that made it out there. There's wonderful legislation in there about creating a knives, NIFE, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's essentially with DIU as the head, it's creating like a billion dollar hedge fund to go do innovative technology. And then each service will have their own, it's brilliant legislation. Each service will have their own essentially knife organization with a pile of money to go get that commercial innovative technology and get it moving. So think of it like just a parallel pathway, not destroying what we already have. You know, we're not changing aircraft carriers or joint strike fighters, but it's to get that innovative tech in. And so I think it's really, really good. So what do I see Naval X doing? What I would love to see is seeing some of these organizations like Naval X, Young Man Task Force, Task Force 59. I'm just talking from a Navy standpoint. We have all this innovation going on. Like, okay, go to like 2.0, like combine it in a way that supports this legislation using all the things we've learned that worked and didn't work from the various innovation organizations and then go do what the Congress tells us to do and build this organization with the right people and the knowledge. I would love to see that. Is that sort of graduation to a, a newer organization that kind of has learned and understands and has seen what works and what doesn't to then do what this country needs us to do 
So I, I very much hope that, that legislation stays in the bill. I just looked it up. It's the non-traditional innovation fielding enterprise comprised of DIU and service level leads. We may do a, a show on it. I was only somewhat aware, but good to get your it's really endorsement good. of that. Yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. And so kudos and shout out to the folks on the Hill that wrote that legislation. Great folks. And I think it can be game changing and powerful because that won't happen. Something is like that would never happen without congressional leadership. Because as you see, you can try and do it from inside the bureaucracy, but it's just too hard. Well, it's good to hear that assessment because this is a question I often ask on, on other shows. Is a democracy with two-year election cycles really suited to a tech economy and a threat regime that has to deal with very complicated threats that you really can't educate the public about, that has to deal with over-the-horizon threats that people worrying about their next election have no incentive to care about. It sounds like there are examples of of this working. How would you rate your, your faith in our ability societally to adapt to these incredibly complicated challenges coming up? Well, my brother, he was a, he's in tech, but at the time he was my younger brother, this is 20 years ago, he was an undergrad studying journalism at Emerson. So, and he had mentioned, when you look at history, the Americans, people don't like really get after it until it turns into a crisis. But when it happens, America responds. And that's shown over and over again. So going to this, look, I have complete and total faith that if we had an existential threat and things needed to get real and happen, the country would respond. So taking it a step down, Okay, like what you're saying, I think there are a lot of folks in our country that think everything's fine, that red's not a threat, we're good to go, don't have to worry about it. So this kind of goes to my sales training. Okay, well, is it the customer, in this case, the American people's fault, that we have not clearly articulated the problems that we're facing? And so that is a challenge for us. And I say us terminal leave, so I'm on my way out of the Navy here. Like, we have to be able to explain to the American people why this is a problem, in this world, and they need to support our development and fund these projects that we need to do to keep the warfighters successful, to win. And that's what it comes down to, is winning wars from a defense perspective. And if we are not getting that message across, if American people are like, I don't get it, we need to do a better job of communicating the challenges. And some of it will be self-evident. I do believe it. If, if it becomes an existential crisis, the American people will look up and be like, oh, crap, my way of life is now threatened. We'll do what we need to do. And we've seen that. In the acquisition system, too, when kids were dying every day due to IEDs, the bureaucracy got its acting gear and created MRAP. So it'll work in a crisis. It's a matter of how do we make it so the pre-crisis level doesn't turn into a crisis by moving faster. That's the challenge. And I think this legislation gets after that. I think that MRAP example is is very telling (laughs) because it sure as heck was a crisis. And wouldn't it be great if we figured out how to anticipate those threats before we had bodies piling up. What advice do you have for the next Naval X director and leaders at that level within DOD innovation? I turned over, so when I turned over Naval X captain, Casey Flute took over, and he's, I think he's there a little bit longer. Um, And then, of course, my leaving of OSC. So folks coming into the leadership roles in the innovation space and defense, what advice do I have? Resilience. It's lonely. 
<laughs> it is hard. So the, that's the advice is you're not going to get any, um, not many pats on the backs. Everyone's going to be mad at you. And I was warned of this too. When I got into that is advice is just be ready. It's, you know, I remember we were having just a terrible day when Elon Musk mentioned his like chewing glass and staring at the abyss of death. I'm like, that is like half of our days in the defense innovation space, because you are fighting, fighting is the right word. You're challenging assumptions and doing things differently than one of the largest bureaucracies on the planet. And they have a way of doing things and you're challenging like core aspects of who they are. And so it's hard when your own peers are like, I just don't get it. Why are you doing this? And so find champions. That's my advice. Very first thing I was told and exactly what Sasha Nadella and every other CEO I talked to is you need senior level advocacy to support you or else you are just done. It's a waste of time. And so we saw, well, we had the support from the SECDEF when we stood up off strategic capital because you need it. And when I had Naval Excellence Secretary Gertz, you need those advocates to help break down those barriers. And I'd say guys like Admiral Lesher, when he was vice CNO, was absolutely instrumental in a personal way of supporting us and doing this hard work because it's not the normal path for your senior military folks. It's you stick to the path, continue to do command. And so it's countercultural. It's very challenging. It's lonely, but find those advocates. That's number one, senior level, four-star level advocacy. Last question. What advice do you have for young warfighters when it comes to innovation? I would say I proved it. I was able to, after my command tour, go into this innovation space and I had a great time, wouldn't do anything. It was hard, yeah. But you can do it. It's just really hard. And there have been a handful of enlisted folks that have done this where they have said, I want to get into this innovation space and do things differently. And similar to us, your E7s aren't going to like it. Your leadership's not going to get it. You probably aren't going to promote because the system doesn't like it. But you can do it. That's what I'd say. You can do it. But the culture, there are places where you can go and not just leave. Because that's what happens. People are just getting mad and leaving because they say there's nowhere for me to go in this organization if I want to challenge things or doing this quote innovation stuff. We have places now, vice getting out. And I will say another option is the reserves are a really cool opportunity. I'm sure Mike Bresser talked about it. We're leveraging the reserve force is huge. That way you can kind of go do your thing, do your private job, and then you can come back and help in certain ways and reserve us an incredibly powerful opportunity to be in the innovation space. Well, Ben, it's been great having you on. Thanks so much for making it happen and enjoy terminal leave. I will. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And follow the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out. Accelerate Defense is a podcast from Acme General Corps. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.